Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Somehow we have never talked about Cyrano de Bergerac. Somehow I was not entirely clear that Cyrano de Bergerac was a real person. <laughs> he was. Uh, and he's often called a man of letters or a philosopher or a soldier or a dualist or a playwright or many other things. He was all of those things. But really what he may have been best at was self-invention. And his real story, because he was a real person, is pretty blurry to begin with, and he definitely contributed to that blur. But that story has been even more obscured over the centuries by the fictionalized versions of his life, or so obscured that you maybe didn't know he was a real person. (laughs) Uh, So today, we are going to take a peek at what we actually do know about the man who called himself Cyrano de Bergerac. Um... You know, if you say Cyrano with a really beautiful French accent, it sounds great. But for me, it starts to sound spitty, so I'll probably do the more Anglicized version. Heads up, we do want to let you know, there is a brief mention of harm to an animal in this one. It comes pretty late in the second segment, so just be aware of that going in. Savigny de Cyrano de Bergerac was born on March 6th, 1619, in Paris, He had an older brother named Denis, who had been born in 1614. And then in the five years between those two, there were two other sons who who died in infancy. And then after Cyrano, another son was born named Abel in 1624. He also had a sister named Catherine, but we're not really sure where in the birth order she was born. He may have had some other siblings as well. It's not certain. For a long time, it was believed that he had been born in Gascony. Cyrano himself is said to have cultivated this particular myth. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. And his father was Abel I de Cyrano, Lord of Mauviers, and his mother was Espérance Bélanger. And Abel, whose family was considered kind of minor gentry, is estimated to have been roughly 20 years older than his wife, Espérance, The Belanger family was well-connected and relatively powerful. One biographer summed up Cyrano's family situation as, quote, richer in titles than in estates. The family lived in Paris until 1622, and at that point, they moved to the family lands at Molvier, that was southwest of Paris, and Abel had inherited this after his mother had died, so that was Cyrano's grandmother. The idea of inheriting a country manor might conjure up images of grandness, but this wasn't especially the case here. This estate had a large house and a mill and some farm buildings, but it really wasn't especially big or fancy in comparison to a lot of other estates. No, it was, uh, they moved to the country, essentially, <laughs> in the, the, the way you might think of that phrase as being uh, a little less grand. At the age of seven, Cyrano was sent away to school, and it was here that he met his lifelong friend, Henri Lebret. This was not a boarding school situation. This was a curate-run boarding house managed by, as Lebret would later write, quote, a good country priest who took in little boarders. According to Lebret's account, Cyrano was both precocious and smart, and he thought from a pretty early age that the priest really didn't have anything he could teach him. As a side note, we'll be referencing Lebret's account of Cyrano's life a lot because he was the first one to write a biography of Cyrano. He did that not long after Cyrano's death. 
It is through Labrette, who was his best friend, that we know what we do about Cyrano, which is relatively little. That also comes with some question marks as to the accuracy and truthfulness of this biography, because Labrette really had his own agenda in how he presented his friend. I mean, there's there's a there's a perspective there when you're writing about your friend in the first place. <laughs> yes. But beyond that, we will get into some of this more later in the episode. Cyrano made the case to his father repeatedly that he was not learning anything from the priest until he was finally allowed to move to Paris on his own and his father, quote, left him to his own devices until the age of 19, per Labrette's account. Now, it is a little unclear what age Cyrano was when this happened, and it is certainly unlikely that he was actually just kind of turned loose in Paris to fly solo as a kid or even a teenager. Uh, It is more likely that he moved in with one of his relatives. He allegedly went to some school in Paris, although which one is once again a mystery. There is some evidence in his writing through references to people and places that points to Collège de Beauvais. One of those references is the name of a character in his first play, Le Pedant Jouet, or The Pedant Duped. The head of the school in the play is named Granger, and right around the time that Cyrano would have been college-aged, the head of the Collège de Beauvais was a man named Granger, whose tenure in that role included some scandal involving who he had decided to marry, as well as allegations of misappropriating funds. The Granger of the play is the main character, but really not a hero. This plot involves him losing out on the woman that he loves to his son and then being left alone and unhappy. This play is the first instance of something that would become an integral part of the Cyrano legend, and that is nose jokes. So in the play, the character of Granger is insulted for a wide range of failings, but in regards to his nose, the ingenue of the piece says, quote, As for his nose, well, it's just asking for us to have a dig. This wonderful nose arrives everywhere a quarter of an hour before its master. Ten reasonably fat cobblers could take shelter from the rain underneath it to do their work. So that, of course, brings us to the question, did Cyrano have a large nose? And according to engravings that were made during his lifetime, there are really only a few of them, yes, absolutely, he had a large nose, but... He doesn't seem to have been particularly troubled by it the way the fictionalized Cyrano is. He made jokes about this as a true sign of superiority. In his fiction writing, having a big nose is a positive for his main characters. So nose talk aside, after finishing up with his schooling, Cyrano, who was headstrong as well as whip-smart, was a little bit of a cad, and the specific details of his misbehavior are not clear, although whatever it was absolutely caused friction between Cyrano and his father. There was also another issue in play between Cyrano and his father, one that stemmed from Abel selling off the family estates at Mauvier and Bergerac and moving the family back to Paris. As an aside, The Bergerac here appears to have not been the town of Bergerac, which is a real place, and a place where uh, some of Cyrano's relatives may have fought in a battle, but in fact, an estate named Bergerac after that place. But the sale of these family lands meant that the family had no basis to claim any kind of nobility any longer, and they would not be able to use the names de Bergerac or de Mauvier, and they could not use the crests associated with those places. 
So to Cyrano, this really kind of cut the legs out from under the identity that he seemed to be building for himself. That was one of a rogue and rakish young noble who lived as he wished. Additionally, Cyrano felt that he would have done a fine job running those estates, and that had been taken away from him. He also was losing what had really been his childhood home and his ties to the countryside, which, based on his writings, he had clearly loved. At this point in Cyrano's life, he became, by most accounts, deeply debaucherous. The Brett later wrote of his friend, quote, "...the age at which human nature is more easily corrupted and the great freedom he had to do whatever he pleased led him to a dangerous tendency." LeBret went on to say, quote, I dare to boast that I stopped him by compelling him to enter the company of the guards with me. But we don't get any additional specificity regarding the nature of Cyrano's behavior. It is generally assumed that that debauchery included things like heavy drinking and gambling and dueling. There has also been a lot of speculation over the years that Cyrano may have been homosexual, which may have been a concern to LeBret. But truthfully, we don't know what he was up to, just that people found it troubling. It was just as likely that the real heart of Cyrano's friend's concern was his status as a libertine. And we mean that in the definition of the word that indicates a rejection of religion. Some of the murkiness in terms of Lebret's account, which seems to have been deliberately done to leave out any potentially damning or unsavory information, has made it really easy for later writers to embellish the Cyrano story, even when they're writing a biography versus a fiction based on speculation, thus contributing to the disparity between the real person and the fictional character that most of us are more familiar with. In a moment, we'll talk about Cyrano's time in the military. But before we get to that, we are going to take a quick sponsor break. In his military service, Cyrano, along with his friend Lebret, was a member of a company that served under Commander Carbon de Casteljaloux and was made up largely of Gascons. This is the source of the incorrect information often repeated over the centuries that Cyrano was from Gascony, something he himself had put forth as a sort of personal reinvention. Gascony was the home of Charles de Bats d'Artagnan, fictionalized by Alexandre Dumas in The Three Musketeers, as well as Henri III of Navarre, who became Henry IV of France. So over the years, the Cyrano legend has thus aligned him with other notables by aligning with their birthplace. Cyrano and D'Artagnan, incidentally, were both present at battles during the Franco-Spanish War, so they may have even crossed paths, but it does not appear that they were ever friends. But Cyrano also started using the name Cyrano de Bergerac during this time, which was less accurate considering the sale of the family land than the name Savignan de Cyrano would have been. According to Cyrano biographer Ishbel Adiman, quote, Cyrano's decision to join the cadets may have been partly prompted by a pragmatic desire to improve his lot in life, but it was above all a decision to seek death or glory. This was, as we said, a time for reinvention for Cyrano. He was relying entirely on his wits and bravado as he entered the guard. He didn't have money, and he had no social standing. Yeah, this was at a time when, like, if you didn't have those things, a military career could elevate you. 
But even though he started with nothing, in the Guard, Cyrano found a degree of success and a great deal of admiration. And that is because he did raise his social standing among his fellow soldiers, but he did it through dueling. Uh, He had had fencing training as part of his education, and he put this to use, allegedly, in the Guard by fighting a duel every single day. According to Lebret, quote, duels, which at the time seemed the unique and most rapid means of becoming known, in a few days rendered him so famous that the Gascons, who composed nearly the whole company, considered him the demon of courage and credited him with as many duels as he had been with them days. Lebret did not include details of who Cyrano dueled with or what kinds of conflicts led to these duels. There is no mention of injuries or fatalities. What he does mention is that Cyrano always fought as a second. This was never over any personal beef, and he claimed that Cyrano fought as a second in dozens and dozens of duels. Cyrano has been described in various accounts as having scars all over his person from dueling, and while we don't have a way to verify that, he was doing that much dueling sure seems possible. So to contextualize what was going on in France in the two years that Cyrano was in the military, when Cyrano and Lebret joined the King's Guard in 1638, France was in the midst of both optimism and upheaval. Louis XIII finally had a male heir in September of that year who would become Louis XIV, and that had been the source of much celebration because they had been without an heir for a while. Meanwhile, France was also socially unstable, The rise of the bourgeoisie had blurred the lines between classes, and while that blurriness allowed men like Cyrano to kind of create their own mystique and chart their own rise through society, it also meant that there was a lot of suspicion and discord and ill will in the very circles that he was trying to rise into. The Thirty Years' War had begun the year before Cyrano was born, although France didn't officially join until 1635. That's when France declared war against Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. That also marked the beginning of the first phase of the Franco-Spanish War, which was sort of a conflict within a conflict of the Thirty Years' War. The first engagement that Cyrano was part of was the Siege of Mouzon, which took place in 1639. Uh, Germany had attacked Mouzon as it sought to expand its border, And the citizens of the town and the soldiers sent there all ran low on food. This is something Cyrano compared to fasting for Lent when he wrote from Mouzon in a letter. He wrote sarcastically, quote, We have no reason at all to complain. We are in another sort of heaven since we neither drink nor eat. They want to bring us to paradise through starvation, and for fear that we may take nourishment in at the ears, they even forbid us words in bad taste. So despite the poor conditions, the lack of sustenance, and no permission to bolster morale with vulgarity or slang, the French were able to fend off the German effort to take Mouzon. But Cyrano was wounded. He was hit with a musket ball in the side, and that passed through his body and exited out the back. But the battle that Cyrano de Bergerac is most famously associated with is the Siege of Arras, which began on June 22, 1640. Just to avoid confusion, there was also a Battle of Arras in 1654 and another Battle of Arras during World War I. So if you go looking for more info on this particular incident, keep an eye on those dates. It's very easy to get confused. Uh, at the time of the conflict that Cyrano was involved in, 
Arras was held by Spain. It was considered part of the Spanish Netherlands, which included the surrounding area of Artois. This was, to be clear, an awful situation. Immediately after the French had established their encampment, which was something that had required a diversionary attack on another nearby city to clear some of the Spanish troops out of Arras, which was really heavily fortified, the Spanish army had surrounded the camp. And this cut off all the supply lines. The men went hungry for two weeks. They weren't able to leave the encampment to carry away any waste, so sanitation grew worse and worse. Men got sick and died, but their bodies couldn't be carried out for fear that anybody trying to do that would be killed. Supplies did manage to finally break through the Spanish line on August 2nd, and that offered some help to the French troops. Within a week, the siege was over, and surprisingly, the French were victorious, able to take the city. The day before the siege of Arras ended, Cyrano had his second significant battle injury when a sword hit him in the neck. This injury never really healed completely. But his convalescence gave his modern myth one of its key figures. While he was recovering in Paris, his cousin, Madeleine Robineau, the Baroness de Nouvellette, supported him financially, and she would later become famously fictionalized as the character of Roxanne. There's no evidence that the real Cyrano ever pined for her. They seem to be friends. In 1641, Cyrano officially turned away from his military career to pursue a life of the mind. He enrolled at the Collège de Lisieux. He also started taking both fencing and dancing lessons. And this shift is described in Henri Lebret's writings as having been the result of the injury that Cyrano had suffered, and that was surely a contributing factor But Cyrano had also been really hardened by his time in battle. There's some irony here that Lebret had likely encouraged Cyrano to enlist because he had fallen in with a crowd that, among other things, was known to be atheist. But military life only made Cyrano more convinced that there was no God, and he grappled with his memories of his military experiences for the rest of his life. And it is in this period of Cyrano's life, when he had left the army, that Lebret described another significant part of the Cyrano mythos, and that is fighting a duel with 100 men at once. We do not, as usual, know all of the details here, and it is not even clear whether Cyrano himself was the target of an attack or whether one of his friends, who, like him, were all libertines, was the intended target. One version goes that a friend of his named Liniere had insulted a man who sent the 100 men after him, and Cyrano, knowing an ambush was waiting, walked his friend home that night, vanquishing the ruffians as they went. The Labrette version is actually pretty similar to that, but it all takes place during broad daylight. This sounds ludicrous, and Labrette says so himself, but he also insists that it's true. He names Uh, three other witnesses to it. There's Monsieur de Bourgeon, Monsieur de Cavet, and Monsieur de Quigy. All of them were honorable men. There's been some speculation by various historians that this was really a publicity stunt that Cyrano orchestrated to kind of boost his post-military image, but we'll never really know the truth on that one. Cyrano, of course, uh, emerged the victor in the version of this that we have. It definitely sounds like an over-the-top movie sequence. It does, uh, which is part of why people have been like, uh, we know he was trying to improve his 
social standing, so it is entirely possible he would do something like this. He definitely had a flair for the dramatic. Um, Another one of Cyrano's exploits during this period involved dueling with an ape, by which we literally mean an animal. Uh, This wasn't a real duel, but this ape was trained as a performer by a man named Brioche who had a puppet theater near Pont Neuf, and one day Brioche dressed the ape as Cyrano as a joke. And so Cyrano, deeply insulted, drew his sword and ran the animal through with it and killed it. Brioche actually sued Cyrano for damages, but Cyrano got out of this whole thing by promising to memorialize the animal in verse. We're going to pause here to hear from some of the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. And when we come back, we will talk more about Cyrano the writer. During the period of his life when he focused on his studies post-military, Cyrano became the pupil of philosopher Pierre Gassendi, possibly by simply forcing himself into the man's lectures, depending on what account you read. Gassendi is known for a number of things. In astronomy, he was the first person to identify Mercury's perihelion. That's the point in its orbit where it's nearest the sun. That was significant because it supported the work of Copernicus. He also wrote a famous critique of Descartes in 1641, which was included in the second edition of Descartes' Meditations. But Gassendi also tried to reconcile atomism, breaking down scientific concepts into smaller components for analysis, with the concepts of Christianity and noted that the way that we perceive the natural world is just inherently limited by our senses. Cyrano's time with Gassendi deeply influenced his writing, And writing was something Cyrano had done throughout his life. Libret wrote about watching Cyrano casually composing verse with great skill, even in the guard room. And his work spanned everything from verse to plays to political pamphlets to novels. He wrote Le Ministre d'Estat Flambé, the Minister of the Burning State, in 1649, which he signed just with the initials D.B., In this and other political pamphlets, he makes a critique of Louis XIV's chief minister, Cardinal Jules Mazarin, writing that he was, quote, a man soiled by murders, poisonings, and sacrileges. But Cyrano was actually not consistent in that messaging, as he later defended Mazarin in writing starting in 1651. That actually led to speculation that Mazarin had bought Cyrano's change of heart. In 1652, Cyrano entered the patronage of the Duc d'Arpajon. This offered him a chance to publish his work with the stability of a patron behind him and a bit of his own money. This is when he published his plays. We mentioned the satirical play Le Pédant Jouet earlier. Uh, That's believed to have been written in about 1645 or 1646, although Cyrano didn't publish it until he was under the Duke's protection. This play's influence lives on in the work of Moliere, who borrowed from, or in some uh, opinions, even plagiarized it for his play, The Cheats of Chopin. Moliere, of course, is also tied to Cyrano in a fictional way, as he appears as a character in the 1897 Cyrano de Bergerac play by Edmund Rostand. We'll talk about that play a bit more in in a little bit. He also published a tragic play in the 1650s titled The Death of Agrippine. This play is a fictionalized version of a revolt against Tiberius Caesar Augustus, mounted by the widow of Germanicus Agrippine. 
And this work was considered blasphemous by many people at the time because it used some double entendre and the Roman setting to make cleverly cloaked jabs at religion. During performances, some lines were said to produce outcry from the audience at Cyrano's anti-religion innuendo. The end of Cyrano's life is actually a bit of a mystery, and there are several different causes mentioned for his death. This really depends on what source you look at, as well as there being some speculation. One of the popular versions is that while he was entering the home of his patron, the Duc d'Arpajon, a beam or a plank from the ceiling fell on him, which struck him in the head. In this version, he didn't die there on the spot, but the injury may have been serious enough to have impacted his behavior. Another commonly discussed possibility that also includes the detail of a behavior change is that Cyrano may have had untreated syphilis. This version of the end of his life includes the sad detail that his brother had him confined to an asylum. And the third and simplest version of Cyrano's death story is that he was in a street fight and he died from the injuries that he received. And in yet another theory, which is supported by historical documents, he may have been injured during an assassination attempt on the life of the Duc d'Arpajon. Although the cause of his death still remains a little bit murky, it is known that he died in Paris on July 28, 1655, at the age of 36. It was not until after Cyrano's death that two of the three books in a Histoire Comique series were published. The first of these is The Comical History of the States and Empires of the Moon, and the second is Comical History of the States and Empires of the Sun. These together are known as The Other World. We don't know what happened to the third novel in these series. It's usually described as having been lost or destroyed. Yeah, you'll sometimes just see all of this listed as one book called L'Autre Monde, which also which means the other world. And it can be a little bit tricky to find uh, both of them translated. These books are really significant because they hold a place as early science fiction. They are what's sometimes called fantastic voyage fiction that tell stories of imaginary travels to, you guessed it, the moon and the sun. And this framework for the stories is wrapped around the hallmark of Cyrano's writing, satirization, and critique of both religion and science of the day. He included seven different ways that people could leave the earth in these books, including one that describes a breathing engine very similar to the ramjet engine that was invented in 1913, so long after his death. Another means of conveyance that the narrator of the books, who is also named Cyrano, leaves the earth for space travel, is by strapping bottles of dew to his person, writing, quote, I planted myself in the middle of a great many glasses full of dew, tied fast about me, upon which the sun so violently darted his rays that the heat which attracted them, as it does the thickest clouds, carried me up high, that at length I found myself above the middle region of the air. Not so grounded in science, but pretty fantastical and fun. Uh, When Cyrano visits the moon, he finds a whole culture there. The inhabitants have four legs, and when they speak, it sounds like music. 
He also meets the demon of Socrates, or the ghost of Socrates, depending on which translation you're reading, who tells him, quote, if there is something you men cannot understand, you either imagine that it is spiritual or that it does not exist. Both conclusions are quite false. The proof of this is the fact that there are perhaps a million things in the universe which you would need a million quite different organs to know. In the second book, the sun is similarly peopled, Cyrano offers a sort of strange explanation for why people can live there, and it turns out in his writing, we're wrong about the sun. It's not made of flaming anything. It's just a regular planet. The narrator gets to the sun by building a device that has lenses which focus the energy of the sun, but it works a lot better than he intended. He was just trying to fly, but winds up being pulled all the way to the sun. And the sun, it turns out in this book, has a very petite monarch to rule it. Uh, The Cyrano of the book is then taken to the kingdom of the birds, where he's put on trial for all the wrongs done to birds here on Earth, and he is sentenced to death. But a parrot that he once helped on Earth defends him, and he is eventually let go. That's just one section of what is a very long and meandering tale. Lebret wrote that after the injury that was ultimately fatal for Cyrano, he was different and a more moral man. Quote, that at last the libertinage of which most young people are suspected came to seem monstrous to him. And I can attest that from then on, he felt all the aversion toward it that anyone who wishes to lead a Christian life should have. And this offers a hint at how one might want to approach these particular writings, particularly if you read one of these earlier versions. Labrette, Cyrano's longtime friend, had at this point in his life become a Jesuit priest, and it was he who prepared Cyrano's novels for publication, with the biography that he wrote included in the text preceding the comical history of the states and empires of the moon. There were later editions based on Cyrano's manuscripts that are are truer to them, uh, but the versions that Lebret edited were edited for content and removed any elements that Lebret thought might be perceived as heretical. Cyrano's life story has been retold in so many different versions over the years, particularly in the last two centuries. But the most famous version is, of course, the play by Edmund Rostand, who wrote Cyrano de Bergerac in 1897. That version has cemented most of the ideas about Cyrano, the man, that are really different from who he actually was. Yeah, definitely romanticized. Uh, The opening night of Rostand's version of Cyrano's life was December 28, 1897. And it was reportedly so successful that the ovation for it lasted over an hour with dozens and dozens of curtain calls. Rosamund Rostand later wrote of her husband's accomplishment that it had moved members of the audience so deeply that even men who had been at odds for years put their grudges away and embraced. That sounds as likely as dueling a hundred people at once. But boy, I bet Cyrano would have loved that description. For sure. (laughs) It caused peace among people who had been feuding. Um, (laughs) I love it so much. (laughs) Um, For listener mail, I have a question about Daguerre, uh, which is from our listener 
Juliana, who writes, I've been a huge fan of the podcast for years. I was so happy to listen to the episode on Louis Daguerre. I've read before that he created the first picture of a person, the man cleaning shoes in the attached image. Until then, it was believed humans might not be able to be photographed. People moved too fast and weren't usually captured due to the longish exposure of the daguerreotypes. So this guy seated for a long time, got photographed by chance. My question is, is this a true story? I haven't been able to fact check it, and I'm dying to know. So uh, that is, if you do a quick search online for uh, Daguerre first photo of a human, you will find this picture. It's a a, a photograph of a, a street in France. And she's right, but it's not the person doing the shoe shine. It's the person getting his shoe shined that is uh, visible. It's very far off in the distance. It's in the lower left quadrant of the picture. And because he was standing there, he's kind of standing. He looks kind of like he's in a jaunty pose. But really, he's standing there with his foot up on the shoe shine's block. Mm. And you can't actually see the person who's shining his shoes because he's moving a bit too much. You can kind of see a vague outline. But the man who was presumably standing there still getting his shoes done is the one that you see. So, yes, that is that is uh, the only version of that story I have ever heard. So I believe it to be true. Um, I also just wanted to give a quick shout out to our listener, Katie, who has earned her Ph.D. in Stuff You Missed in History Class by listening to every episode uh, and wrote us. And she got the shirt from Tea Public that we have available, uh, and she is wearing it. So congratulations, and thank you for being a listener. Uh, it means so much to us that people would spend that much time with us. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you, Katie, and congratulations. And hopefully you'll stick with us as we continue on our merry way. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. If you would like to subscribe and you haven't gotten around to it yet, couldn't be easier. You can just do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever it is you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.